<laughs> Galatians chapter 5, if you would, in your scriptures, please. All right, stand together for the reading of God's word. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Continuing in 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves with someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Lord, add his blessing to the scriptures. Please be seated. Let's say that together, shall we? The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God endures forever. You believe that? You believe? I believe that. I'm counting on it. I am counting on it. So each week we have been saying beliefs don't automatically change people's lives, just because you don't automatically make a change in, in a person. They have to be drilled down into your heart with what we've been calling spiritual disciplines, Christian practices that we have in life. So today, a Christian practice that you might not think of as one of those, uh, and that is friendship. Friendship and the importance of friendship, especially between believers, especially in the body of Christ. So let's, let's just take a moment and, and pray. So Father, we're grateful for the, the Word of God and for the clarity that's there, the truth that's there, that we can guide our lives and know that, uh, that Almighty God, Sovereign God, has given us a, a standard to live by. And so we take that seriously. And we take our relationship, our friendship with you seriously. And we pray today as we talk on these things and how we relate to one another in the body of Christ and how we relate to other people that it might be that was instructive, but also that which uh, gives us clarity in speaking into the lives of one another. We're so grateful for, for who you are. We're so grateful for the word of God that it does endure forever. And uh, again, as we look out at this world and the difficulties that are everywhere, we're thankful for the stability that is there in Christ and in your people. We ask that you be with us now as we share together from this word, we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Now, we, again, we don't, I don't think we think of this as a spiritual practice, but, but it is. The ancients understood that it was when they looked at their lives together. In fact, there were several Greek words that are used that describe the different forms of love relationships. And you're aware of these, you've heard of them before. A storge is the word for family relationships, mother and father and nuclear family with children. And, and um, uh, eros simply means a romantic love. And uh, you see that, the different ones that are there, agape, God's love, and then phileo, phileos, which is the word for friendship. So there's, there's the common friendship that we have. 
The first two kinds of love that we talked about there, just quickly, uh, the relationships kind of happen to you. They kind of happen to you. You know, you're, you're, you're involved in these things. You don't choose your family. Some of you wish you would, right? You don't choose your family. You have a relationship whether you seek it or not. There's a relationship that's there. We all know those relationships. I found something this week as I was studying on this and looking at it, but let me share it with you. If you think your family has problems, and some of our families do have problems, I think we all have problems, consider the, the marriage mayhem created when a 76-year-old Bill Baker of London recently wed Edna Harvey. She happened to be his granddaughter's husband's mother. His grand, get that, get that, his granddaughter's husband's mother. That's where all the confusion began in the family, according to Baker's granddaughter, Lynn. She says, my mother-in-law is now my step-grandmother. My grandfather is now my stepfather-in-law. My mom is my sister-in-law, and my brother is my nephew. But it gets even crazier than that. I'm now married to my uncle, and my own children are my cousins. So, so you, you think you've got some issues in your family. There's issues there, right? Um, even romantic love, in a sense, happens to you. We talk about we fall in love. It happens to you. It's something that, that's there, which means that sometimes the attraction just comes upon you for another individual. But friendship really doesn't happen unless you work at it with another individual. It was considered the most virtuous of all the loves. And the reason it was considered the most virtuous of all the loves is because it is deliberate and it does take work. It takes a lot of work. And the Bible understood how important friendship was and the significance of friendship. When Jesus says to his disciples toward the end of his ministry, he says, you are not just my disciples. You're not just my followers, not my students. You're my friends. You're my friends. When Paul and Peter addressed the church, he says, dear friends, in the letter. Begins, dear friends. For us, it's a, a sentimental statement, but for them it meant something, and it meant something strong. Friendship was something believers were to extend to everyone in the Christian community, extend to one another. That didn't mean that they, there weren't levels of intensity, right? There are here. There's levels of intensity of the love that's here. Jesus said that to his 12 disciples, right? He said that to the 12 disciples. You're all my friends, he says. But John was his best friend. John was his best friend. And Peter and James and John were close friends of the Lord. So you can't really practice the discipline of friendship as intensely with a group as you can with individuals. I mean, we're all friends, but there's different levels of friendship in the, in the body of Christ. But the Bible says that all believers in your Christian community must be your friends in the church. We must be friends with one another. And although this passage doesn't have a word friend in it, there are two qualities that are lifted here in Scripture to, for the power to be a friend, and that is the first is consistency, and the second is intimacy. 
And we're going to take a look at both of those. Consistency and intimacy. First, consistency. A friend is somebody who's always there for you. You've heard that, haven't you? Friend who's always there. Not going to leave you, going to be with you. Verse 2 says, carry one another's burdens. If you see somebody struggling, you see somebody having a difficult time, how do you bear that burden with them? And here's the answer. You come alongside them. You come alongside them. You get close to them. Secondly, you let some of that burden slide onto you, slide into your life. You take it to yourself. Now, what does that mean? That means something. If you have a person who has an, an emotional burden and they're crying and they're weeping and, and sometimes you, you, don't, you don't want to go over there. You don't want to spend time. You don't want to spend energy with that. You don't want to spend evening after evening, maybe day after, for, while you know, they go through all of that, that difficulty. You don't want to do it the next night or the next night. Do you know why? It's draining. It's draining. It will drain you to do that. But they feel better when you listen. They feel better that you're there and you've been with them. They feel affirmed by you. They feel like they're not facing their battles alone. So you're, you're getting drained. Energy's going out of you. Capacity's going out of you. But they're getting built up. Now, what's that mean? What's that mean? You're bearing their burden. Some of the weight of the suffering is sliding on you. You're standing in their place. You're bearing that burden. The sense you're a substitute for them. You are losing some emotional resources, and you do. You do, and you know this. In order to help them bear their burden, you lose emotional resources. If it's a financial burden, the same thing really occurs. There's no way to help them bear that burden without opening your wallet to them, right? Opening your wallet and being generous people, um, sharing your possessions with another person. You can't lift them up without losing some of your resources. You're bearing their burden. Jonathan Edwards wrote a well-known treatise on why we need to be generous people uh, to those who don't have the material needs that are necessary. The poor, he's speaking of the needy, uh, others. Edwards says, well, he says, I, I know I probably ought to help these people with their needs. And, he, and he's writing this in his, his little thoughts. He says, but then he says, well, I can't afford to. I can't afford to. I have nothing to spare. I have nothing to spare. So he says in his treaty, and it's very interesting, in many cases by the rules of the gospel and what the gospel tells us to do together, to be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. When you say, I'd love to help, but I can't afford it. I can't afford it. What you mean is, I can't help you without burdening myself. That's what you mean. I can't help you without it become a burden of mine. You know, I can't afford to help you without hurting myself. Edward says, that's exactly what you're called to do 
in Scripture. That's exactly what you're called to do in Galatians 6 too. When you say, I can't afford to help, what you mean is, I can't help you without suffering. Giving energy, giving money, lessening what I have, the resources that I have. And that's true not only in relationships, that's true in a church. When they say, you know, can you help with such and such? Can you? Well, I, I don't have time, I can't, no. It means you're going to be burdened. You're going to be burdened. There's resources that we need from you to have a healthy body in Christ. Uh, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. I was talking to my daughter Jackie and, uh, and uh, her husband, and they're in the church. Uh, he's a pastor of a church down in Charleston. And, uh, and I was asking her, I said, how, how are you doing? You're coming back from COVID? Things going well in the church? And she said, well, she says, well, yeah, we are, but we're, we're still struggling uh, to get people to do anything. <laughs> and uh, so she was saying to me, uh, she says, I don't understand it really, Dad. Uh, she says, you know, I, I just look at it as under the Lord. I just look at it as under the Lord. And it's not a question. I do this as under the Lord. It's his church. It's his people. It's his. It's his. To be a friend is to let some of the suffering of the other person slide onto you. And now you have it. That's why we say a friend sticks with you, is always there, and lets some of your suffering fall. Fall on them. If a person doesn't do that, they may be an acquaintance. They may be an acquaintance, but they're not a friend if they won't do that. They're not a friend. In fact, they might even be a brother. They might be a sister. They might be a spouse, but not a friend. That's true. That's true. Proverbs 18, 24 says, There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Right? Interesting. What does, that, what does that mean? What does that mean? The essence of friendship is these two factors. Consistency. You stay with your friend through thick and thin, even though you hurt, even though you're being drained, even though you're having to put out energy. You're there. You stand close enough so that comes off on you and you bear some of their burdens. If you stay away from that person because you don't want to have to listen one more night to all of their problems, to all of their things, all of the, you're standing far enough away that none of their suffering is going to fall on you. Okay. But you're not a friend. When the Bible says there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, you know what that means? You may have a brother, you may have a sister, or even a spouse who's not really a friend. I read an article that was addressing what it meant to be, it was interesting, what it meant to be less rich. You know, what's going on in our society now. The guy was writing, my, he was talking about a guy from New York who went to his financial advisor and he says, because of the turmoil that's in the economy, he says, I used to be worth 20 million and, and now I'm only worth eight. Such a problem. Such a problem, you know. And he says, the problem is, uh, I can't bear to tell my wife because she's still spending like I'm worth 20 million. And the financial advisor uh, said to him, you have to tell her, just stop. 
Just stop. You can't afford it. And the guy says, I can't. Because if I tell her, I think she'll leave me. Now, we think about that, and we can, we can grin about that, but here's what that means. That woman might be his spouse, but she's not his friend. She's not his friend. There's a friend that sticks closer than a spouse. We look at Scripture here. That means your brother, your sister, your spouse won't stand there with you, won't stand under the burden with you, but they're not your friend. Still your sister, still your brother. I mean, still family. The essence of friendship is consistency. Consistency. A friend never lets you down. The second feature of of friendship is intimacy. In this passage, we don't get the full range of intimacy, the vulnerability that happens in a friendship, the transparency that you have to have in a friendship. We don't like to be transparent. I don't like to be transparent. You know, I don't want to... There's a case study of it in verse 1. Take a look at verse 1. If someone is caught in sin, it says, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. But watch yourself. Or you may be tempted. Watch yourself. First, what is this describing? It's, it's describing confrontation, isn't it? You're confronting someone with something. Confrontation happens because the person is caught in sin. What, is that, what does that mean to us? What is that, when we see that, when we, that, now don't read this verse, and people do, as saying it would be normal for Christians to see somebody sinning and think you have to Tell them about it. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. 1 Peter 4.8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is not easily angered and keeps no record of wrongs. 1 Corinthians 13.7, love hopes all things, endures all things. Hello. It endures all things. The mark of spiritual immaturity, of being immature in the faith, is to always have to correct people, always have to tell everyone where they're wrong. Let me do that. I'm the pastor. We'll we'll straighten this out. This case study says the person is caught in a sin. That's the key. To be caught in a sin implies, first of all, there's a pattern. They're caught in this sin. Second, the person is doing something repeatedly over and over. And that's what trapped means. And secondly, to be trapped means they're, and they're harmed by this themselves, but they're also harming other people because of what they're doing. And third, they're stuck. They're just stuck. They can't get beyond this. They can't get out of it themselves. So a person is doing something wrong, doing it repeatedly, hurting them, hurting others, and they can't stop. And they're stuck in that sin. And then we're told there are two things that we have to do. Gently restore them. Gently restore them. What does the word restore mean? It means to take here in the Greek, it it takes a, a person who has a dislocated bone in their body that's out of joint and to put it back in the socket. That's what it means. Have you ever had a bone out of joint? 
dislocation in, in, in your body and had it pop back in. I can remember when I was playing ball uh, back in the day when I played ball and uh, I had that happen in a game. Uh, it was under the basket. There was a scrimmage going on. Some people were chasing after the rebound and suddenly a teammate starts screaming and writhing in pain. He's on the floor and he's just, and, and everyone's kind of looking at it and the trainer comes running out from the, 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 the bench to the court and with his right hand, he takes the kid's elbow and with his left hand, he puts it on the shoulder and he pops that thing, pop. And we're all looking at it, you know, and he puts that, it was an awful sound. It was an awful sound. What was interesting was the guy screaming on the floor. I mean, he's just in pain. And then he was smiling. He was smiling. It was over. The only way to get from screaming to smiling, the only way that you can get him out of the pain of dislocation was the greater pain of relocation. It's a greater relocation. It's like surgery. It's like surgery. It's inflicting healing pain to people. Healing pain. But you're a friend. So you do it gently, Scripture says. You do it gently. Gently means humbly. Humbly. Why? Verse 1. Watch yourself, right? Watch yourself. You may also be tempted. Could happen to you. Be careful. That means you're not able to correct somebody gently if you look at them and say, that'll never happen to me. I'm not stupid. I understand. That'll never happen to me. See, if, if you see somebody caught in a sin and you think that somehow you're made of better stuff than that, you're, you're better than that. You'd, that never would happen to you, and you feel kind of superior to them, you'll never be able, you won't be capable of helping them. My dad, my dad, when he was having dementia, and he was full-blown, and he didn't know much of anything, and, uh, and it was difficult. Uh, he was at our house, you, you, you all remember this was years ago before he passed, but he was... Um, it was difficult for my mother because she was watching her spouse that she has been with for years and years and years deteriorate and not be able to handle things that he always handled and could always handle. And so she was getting more and more frustrated with him. It was hard for her. And so we had to come alongside. We had to come along and be there and to help and be a part of that and allow some of that to fall on us. You know, but I can remember my dad, he was, uh, we were at the dinner table and he was, and I, I think I shared this once before, I get, can't remember, but he was, he was muttering to himself. He's going, and I thought, well, what is he yapping about over there? Because he was just muttering, so I went over and I, I, I kept putting my ear in there and said, listen to him, see what he had to say. And I, I said, dad, I said, what do you, what is it? And he hears what he was saying. And I've never forgotten this. This is one of my favorite little phrases of his. I did the right thing. I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> I did the right thing. I kept my mouth shut. And uh, I ne I've never forgotten that. If you think you're better than someone, you won't be a good friend. If you have that kind of a spirit, you will not be a good friend. You'll be abrasive. You might be clumsy in the whole process, haughty about it, but it's difficult to come along 
beside someone you feel superior and take their burdens. Take their burdens. A real friend neither enjoys confrontation. It's not something that's enjoyable, nor do you avoid it. Because if you're spiritual, look again at verse 1, if you're spiritual, spiritual means anyone who has the Holy Spirit, anyone who's a Christian, this is what friendship means. And it's scary. It's scary. It's scary because it might not work. It might not work. And that person may no longer like you. That person may no longer relate to you because you're confronting. And that will hurt. But you know what's even more scary than that? It might work. It might work. And do you know why? Because when you do that to someone else, you're giving them permission. And I've said this before to do it back to you, to come back to you and your life and how you're living your life. You're giving them permission to do it to you. And who wants that? Who wants that? Do you know what friendship is? A friend always lets you in, never lets you down. Never lets you down. Intimacy, uh, consistency, vulnerability, transparency, sticking closer than a brother, always lets you in, never lets you down. We need this so bad. I don't like this, truthfully. I don't like this. Um, I, I think there was a time I shared this, but I'm going to share it again because it really fits with where I want to be. Uh, back, there was a sequel to Frankenstein in 1935, and the sequel to that, Boris Karloff. You know Boris Karloff? You older, you older people, you understand that. Yeah. The younger people, listen up. But the sequel was The Bride of Frankenstein. The Bride of Frankenstein, a timeless classic. It really was, and still thought of today as that way. So in the movie, there's a famous scene where the monster, who's Boris Karloff, finds a cottage in the middle of the forest with a blind man that's in the cottage. He's blind. And when the blind man comes to the door, the monster's growling. He's just, he's upset and growling. And the blind man, he can't see the monster. If he just hears him, he's seeing, he only knows he's a man who's, he's not able to speak. And instead of getting scared, the blind man basically says, hey, you, you're afflicted like me. You're afflicted like me. You can't speak and I can't see. Maybe we could help each other. Maybe we could be friends. Maybe we could be friends. Before the monster came to the cottage, the man had been on his knees praying. And when he was praying, he says, Oh God, please bring me a friend to alleviate my terrible loneliness. And over the next four days, they were together, if you know the movie, they're together in the, the cottage and the blind man is bringing the monster in. And essentially he says, you're afflicted, I'm afflicted. You can't speak, I can't see, we can be friends. So they do chores together and they eat together and they talk together and and the movie shows the monster beginning to learn. And he begins to say things like, simple things like food, oh, good, good, and friend. He learned the word friend. And the monster begins to smile. It's the only time in any of those movies with Boris Karloff uh, that Karloff lets the monster smile. But it's a horror movie. It's a horror movie. 
So what ends up happening is some hunters come to the door. They see the monster that's in there. They're upset by that. They think they've got to destroy this thing. So they attack him. The cottage burns down. The blind man dies. The hunters die. And in the end, the monster is groping off in the woods. And he's saying, friend, friend, friend. What's the point? And there is a point. What's the point? Nothing is more humanizing. Nothing is more humanizing than friendship. We are made for one another. We're created for one another. Even Frankenstein was turning human under friendship. There is nothing you need more. There's nothing that I need more than friendship. Friendship. But there's a problem with our hearts. There's a problem with our hearts. I'm scared of friendship. I'm scared of friendship for two reasons. And I think you are too. I think you are too. My natural self is such that I'm afraid of transparency. I'm, I'm your pastor for crying out loud. I can't tell you my problems. I'm afraid of transparency. I don't want criticism. My natural self is selfish. Selfish. I don't want consistency. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? You feel this yourself in your lives? So on the one hand, I'm afraid of having anyone tell me my faults. I don't need that. I don't want that. I don't like that kind of transparency. That scares me. It's hard for me to talk about my faults. So the intimacy is scary. The consistency seems a little bit ornerous to me. It's too hard. It's hard. I don't want to have to be there night after night to be with someone, to be there for the... I got my own problems. I got things in my life I got to deal with. I got my own problems. I don't want some of the suffering to slide on me. I got my own suffering to deal with in my life. I'm too selfish to be a friend. Too scared, honestly, to tell you my problems. Friendship, friendship. Let's move on. Verse 26 of chapter 5, the last first verse we read, when he says, don't be conceited, don't provoke or envy one another. The word conceited in the Greek there means to be hungry for glory. Don't be hungry for glory. It means to need approval, to need approval all the time. People that are in leadership, they like approval, you know? Need glory, need strokes, need to, be a, need to be acclaimed. There's a need for that. And what he says is if you're hungry at the center, not sure of your own value, if you're needing that glory all the time in your life, the need of approval and acclaim, you will either provoke, which is a word that means lord it over someone, because I want it for me, I want it for me, or you feel it's beneath you, so there's envy. You envy someone else. You, you, you feel inferior, so you start to envy people and what they can do and what you can't do. You feel those people are above you. 
in all your relationships, you'll be saying, am I getting enough? Am I getting enough? Am I getting enough glory? Am I getting enough acclaim? Do people notice me? Am I being noticed? And if you're glory hungry, you can't have the transparency because you can't take the criticism. And you can't be consistent because you're really too selfish. And you're looking out for yourself. You have to go where your own needs are met. I got my own problems. Paul says a Christian actually can overcome that because in verse 3 and 4, take a look at that. This is important. This is important. He says this, a Christian knows he or she is nothing. A Christian knows he or she is nothing and yet is proud of himself. Isn't that interesting? Verse 3, Paul says, you're nothing. (laughs) You're nothing, Bill, you're nothing. Verse 4, be proud of yourself. You're nothing, be proud of yourself. You're nothing, be proud of yourself. Look what he's saying here. You read that and you say, what? What? But you see, if you're glory needing, you're glory needing, if you're trying to get your self-image from the world, if you need people to tell you that you're good, if you need success, then you'll either be up here feeling proud of yourself because you're getting the acclaim, you're getting the things you need, or you'll be down here because you feel like you're failing. But the Christian is both down here and up here simultaneously. Because as a Christian, I know I'm sinful. I know I got issues. I know I got to come before the Lord. And I'm nothing. But yet in Jesus, I'm everything. I'm everything. That, that scripture there, there's another scripture that, that identifies it this way, which I really like. He just takes that same, same uh, scripture there. He says, I'm penniless, but I own the world. I like that. I'm penniless, but I own the world. That gives me what I need to be a friend. That gives me what I need to be a friend with someone else. That gives me what I need if if you really know you're a sinner and that humbles you out of your selfishness. You're not better than anyone else. Humbles you out of yourself. If you know you're loved by God, that affirms you out of your fear so that you can be transformed and transparent because you're loved by God. You're loved by the Almighty. And you can become a friend. So how do we get such a self-image? The answer is in verse 2. Take a look at that, please. Paul does not say, bear one another burdens because I say so. That's what I say to my kids. I said so. That's why. He says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. What is this law of Christ? What is that? The word law here probably means the pattern of Christ, the pattern of Christ. So fulfill the pattern of Christ in life. Bear one another's burdens because Christ bore your, because of Christ, he, did, he bore your burdens, right? There's the secret. There's the secret. To bear a burden means to get in the person's shoes and let some of the suffering again slide into your life. The incarnation of Jesus didn't just get near us. He didn't get near us. 
He became like us. He became, that's the incarnation. He became a human being in the manger and then on the cross. Jesus didn't let a little bit of our suffering slide on him. He took it all. He took all of our suffering. In Isaiah 53, which we're moving toward very quickly with Easter coming, he says, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought peace was upon him and by his wounds were healed. He took it. He took it. He was crushed. He was crushed. There's the ultimate burden bearing that we see here in this passage. Jesus took all of our sins, all of our punishment, all of our guilt, all of the human race from the beginning of time on himself and it crushed him. And he did it gladly. He did it gladly. You know why? Because He's the ultimate friend. Jesus is the ultimate friend. The cross was the ultimate act of friendship. I no longer call you servants. I call you my friends. Jesus says in John 15, I, you know, you, you, I have called you friends. And, and he, but before that, in the 13th verse of John 15, it says, greater love has no man than this. Right? Then he laid down his life for his friends, for his friends. Therefore, he says, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. And there it is. It's a complete thing here in Scripture. A friend always lets you in. A friend is always vulnerable. How much more vulnerable could you get than being nailed to a cross? How much more vulnerable could he have gotten? A friend never lets you down. There's consistency there. How much more consistency can you have than somebody who's willing to go to hell for you. They wouldn't give up on us. Wouldn't give up on us. When you see Jesus loving us like that, and we go to the cross and we see that, he bore the infinite burden for you. That affirms you out of your fear, that humbles you out of your need to, of selfishness, and you can be a friend. If you've never given your life to Christ, never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, never really put him at the center of, of, of your life, you're, you're, you're kind of like Boris Karloff, knowing you haven't really become all you should be, groping in the forest, looking for your friend. Guess what? In Jesus, here he is. Here's the ultimate friend. The ultimate friend. By the way, if you're a Christian, and I, and I, like, and I got, like this thought, I don't know how often we think about this within the body of Christ here. If you're a Christian, thank God for the friends that he's put in your life. The friends that he's put in your life. C.S. Lewis talks about this in the, in the book, The Four Loves. He says, we think we have chosen our friends. In reality, a few years or a difference in the dates of our birth a few miles between houses, a choice of one school instead of another, an accident of a topic being raised or not raised on the first meeting, any of these chances might have kept us apart. And he continues, and this is, this is interesting, and I, I, it made me think about it again, but for a Christian, 
There are, strictly speaking, no chances. There's no chances. God has been working, and God is sovereign, and God is at work. Christ said to the disciples, you have not chosen me. What does he say? I chose you. I chose you. You have not chosen one another here in this body of believers. Jesus has chosen us for one another. This is his body. This is his family. And he called you, and he called you, and he called you, and he called you, and he put us together in a body. You have not chosen one another. Jesus said, I have chosen you for each other. In the church, the family of God, it is the Lord who chooses the guests, chooses those who come. It is he who has chosen us for each other in the body of Christ. We're not here by accident. We are not here by accident. There's a reason you're here. There's a reason. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our midst. We're thankful for Christian friends, for the privilege we have of helping one another, speaking into the lives of each other, of bearing burdens. We're thankful for the witness of Jesus Christ that he came and he bore all our burdens and that because of that we have freedom in Christ and we can help one another. So we're thankful this morning our Father for, for this passage of scripture, for this, this Christian discipline in the body of Christ to care for one another, to love each other to come alongside of each other, to bear each other's burdens, to help one another, to be a part of each other's lives in ways that are meaningful, in ways that are healing, in ways that are helpful. We pray, Father, that we continue to do this for your glory, not ours, for your honor, not ours, for your kingdom, not ours. And this is our heart and prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.